Uh, this week, we are still in our Gospel of Matthew series, but we're going to Matthew 14. We're going to come back to the parables of Jesus over the summer, and so they will um, give us a little bit... They're, they're nice, they're short, I will call the series Stories by Jesus, and they just give us a little jumping-off point to talk more about the kingdom, but we'll just move on to Matthew 14. And, and the interesting thing to me as we begin to read Matthew 14 is some of the similarities between the story Heidi just told us at North Kids about Saul and David and the fact that there's this king who's been anointed but isn't yet a king and that threat that that puts on to those who do have the title of king. And so let me read for you from uh, Matthew 14, the first couple verses. I'm reading from the Common English Bible, just it's a little bit different, but so you're aware. So it says, at, this time, at that time, Herod, the ruler, heard the news about Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist, and he's been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work through him. Herod had arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison because of Herodus, the wife of Herod's brother, Philip. That's because John told Herod, it is against the law for you to marry her. Although Herod wanted to kill him, he feared the crowd because they thought John was a prophet. But at Herod's birthday party, Herodus' daughter danced in front of the guests and thrilled Herod. Then he swore to give her anything she asked. At her mother's urging, the girl said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a plate. Although the king was upset, Because of his solemn pledge and his guests, he commanded that they give it to her. Then he beheaded John in prison. They brought his head on a plate, gave it to the young woman, and she brought it to her mother. But John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And then they went and told Jesus what had happened. So this story stands at the marker, the halfway point through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, John prepared the way for Jesus' ministry by marking a path and proclaiming that Jesus was coming. And now John marks the path to Jesus' death as well. You can see the hints. Herod thinks that there has been a miraculous resurrection. Both Jesus and John call people to repent, challenge corrupt political leaders, speak truth to power at the cost of their own lives. It's also interesting that here, John's disciples come and take the body of John and almost sort of ask, raises the question, why don't Jesus' disciples do the same thing after Jesus' death? I want us to notice a few things in this story. The first is that in this story, Herod is not just an adulterer. This is not the only thing at play. John the Baptist's critique of Herod is much more than the prophet Nathan critiquing David after his sin with Bathsheba. The reality is that what John is saying to Herod is, you are proving that you cannot be God's anointed. You cannot be God's king because you are doing these sinful actions, taking your brother's wife. You cannot be God's anointed. And therefore, Herod, your power is illegitimate. You do not have power. To make it worse, John has already declared that God's true anointed, God's king, is on the scene and he is coming. He is going to be here. So the anointed of God cannot be Herod, but Herod is also aware that the anointed must be out there somewhere. He is threatened. 
I really liked what N.T. Wright said about Herod in this passage. He says, Herod has a lust for power. John stands in his way. He has a lust for women. He's already stolen his brother's wife, and now he is aroused by, his by her daughter, his niece. They can twist him round their fingers, not that it took much twisting. He is a proud and drunk, and the two together make him promise more than he intends and deliver more than he should. Herod's failings come together in a rush, and John's death is the result. So let's ask ourselves, let's put ourselves in this story for a moment and ask this question. Where do we need to be like John the Baptist? Where are the places that you are called to stand individually or corporately and are called to stand against wickedness and evil? And are we prepared for the threats that will come if we do? What are we prepared to sacrifice, to speak truth to those who don't want to hear truth? This is a conversation that Nikki and I have had more than once in our years of pastoral ministry. More than once we have found ourselves facing opposition and we've had to ask ourselves, will we be silent? Will we turn it down a little bit? Will we compromise? Or will we fight for what we believe is the most faithful way to follow Jesus? And it's not just those of us in pastoral roles who face that. All of you face that situation in different times and places. You will be faced with employers or employees or co-workers or friends whose behavior runs counter to the faith and hope that we have in Christ. And you have to ask then, will I stand against this or will I be silent? Am I willing to count the cost to follow Jesus even if it may cost me dearly? I also think, though, it's important that we don't always place ourselves as the good guys in all the stories of the Bible. And sometimes we need to put ourselves in the position of Herod. And we need to begin to ask, where am I actually like Herod? We don't always get to be the good person. And so N.T. Wright asks us, what small weaknesses in our lives are we allowing to grow unchecked that might one day produce real wickedness? What Herod-like characteristics are lurking inside us, waiting for a chance to destroy us or others? Herod's weaknesses, his lust for power, his lust for women, his overindulgence in drink, grow and grow until one day he is overtaken by them. It reminds me of what Proverbs 5, to 23 says, The wicked will be caught by their own evil acts. Grabbed by the ropes of their own sin, those without instruction will die, misled by their own stupidity. There's a little bit of Herod in each of us. Sin left unchecked will overtake us. We will become bound by our own sin. We will be caught by our own evil acts. But that's not how we're supposed to live. That's not the vision for Christian life. Rather, Colossians 1.13 says, He, Jesus, rescued us from the control of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son. He loves. He set us free through the Son and forgave our sins. The powers of darkness can speak to us, but they do not control us. 
We believe, we hope, we trust that Jesus has rescued us, liberated us from those. He has set us into a new kingdom, the kingdom of the Son. So those things they can, that want to bind us, they, they speak to us, but they do not control us. I just want to say that if you are feeling caught, if you are concerned that those weaknesses within you are growing, it's time to do something. And the hardest part is sometimes just to admit it, to admit that you struggle, that you have things that you are afraid to voice. When we allow darkness to grow in us, it will always gain more control. The first step is to speak it out to a brother or a sister, to allow the light of God in onto those spots that we have been hiding, to invite others into our life to see our weakness. As a church, we want to be about the work of liberation and freedom. We believe that that happens systemically within the world, but it also has to happen individually in our own hearts. If I just want to encourage you, to plead with you, don't let your inner Herod lurk inside waiting to destroy you or anyone else. Speak it. Uh, I'm available or somebody else in the church, another Christian brother or sister. Do not let those weaknesses grow until they bring destruction. Let's continue in the story of Matthew. Starting in verse 13. When Jesus heard about John, he withdrew in a boat to a deserted place by himself. When the crowds learned this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus arrived, he saw a large crowd and had compassion for them. He healed those who were sick. That evening, his disciples came to him and said, This is an isolated place. It's getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, There's no need to send them away. You give them something to eat. They replied, uh, we have nothing here except five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here. He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves of bread and the two fish. He looked up to heaven, blessed them, broke the loaves apart, and gave them to the disciples. Then the disciples gave them to the crowds, and everyone ate until they were full, and they filled 12 baskets with leftovers. About 5,000 men plus women and children had eaten. The three characters in this story are interesting to me. The crowd, Jesus, and the disciples. So let's start with the crowd. Because there's something interesting about this crowd. Uh, I think sometimes we miss some of the politicalness of Jesus and this story. The revolutionary Jesus that is present. Let's start with this last line. About 5,000 men plus women and children had eaten. The word plus here in the Common English Bible is actually a little bit misleading. It would, could be more directly translated as without women and children. 5,000 men without the women and children. So is this just some sort of ancient way of excluding women or marginalizing them? I, I don't think so in this story. It's seemingly the largest crowd of Jesus' ministry it seems that it was worth counting. Never before, though, if you notice, has the crowd needed to be sent away. This is not the first time Jesus has had a crowd, but before the crowd seemed to come and go of their own, you know, they get hungry and they leave. So why does this crowd need to be dismissed? And why are the women not 
counted. Consider this. Herod, who clearly had enough food for a lavish birthday party, as the king of the land, was the one responsible for the natural resources. In other words, the king's duty is to feed the people. The fact here that there is a large crowd without enough food is a critique of Herod and his management of resources. And Jesus, who is the true king, will feed the people. He will provide a not-so-subtle critique of Herod and his ruling buddies. But can I also suggest that the numbering of this crowd sounds not unlike Numbers 1, 2 to 3. It says, Take a census of the entire Israelite community by their clans and their households, recording the name of every male. 20 years old and above, who are eligible for military service in Israel. These you and Aaron will enlist into your military units. You see, the reason I think that women and children perhaps are not included in the counting of this crowd is because this is not just a herding crowd who's following Jesus. This is the people rising up in anticipation that Jesus is about to take his place as their anointed king. This is a militia. Jesus, it makes a lot of sense, right? Jesus' friend, his relative, his prophet has just been murdered by the state. His prophet has been killed and the people are hungry because their ruling king has not been providing for them. And they say, hey, it's time. Let's go. This seems like the right moment to go and, and, and fight for our king. They are waiting. This is, crowd could be seen as a standing militia ready to confront Herod. And perhaps this is why the disciples get a little bit concerned as the evening starts to come. Uh, Jesus, maybe we should send thing, them away before things get out of hand. But Jesus will feed the crowd. He will critique Herod's rule. And then he will send the people home. The kingdom of Jesus does not come by sword, force, or coercion. The kingdom of Jesus is peaceable. It heals, it saves, it feeds the hungry, it critiques injustice, but it does not need a militia or an army. And so that's the crowd. What about Jesus? Jesus is amazing in this story. It's the miracle before the miracle. So imagine with me, think back to someone who you have lost, a friend, a relative, the 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 loss of someone you love deeply. Some of you won't have to think that far back. For others, maybe it's a little bit longer. But imagine now that loss, and you're trying to slip away for a few moments to grieve, to process some of that, to mourn. And so Jesus gets on a boat to find a secluded place to mourn and grieve. And when he lands in his quiet place, he finds a huge group of people waiting for him, perhaps even ready to go to war for him. A complete misunderstanding of everything he's been trying to teach them. And Jesus does not respond with anger or frustration, but with compassion. He has compassion for them and healed those who are sick. Even in the face of the death of his cousin, Jesus carries on his ministry of compassion, of life-giving practices of healing and feeding. And so N.T. Wright said, Before the outward and visible work of power healing the sick, comes the inward and invisible work of power in which Jesus transforms his own feelings into love for those in need. 
I love that image. Before anyone, even Jesus, can do the visible works of the kingdom of God, we must first transform our own inner feelings into love. We cannot have compassion for those around us if we are judging them. We cannot have mercy for those in need if we are angry. We cannot love our neighbors as ourselves if our own inner feelings are that of selfishness. Jesus models for us this first step to any outward practice of love. It has to be to align our hearts with the heart of God. To have mercy and compassion and love for those with whom we engage. Jesus takes his sorrow and transforms it into love for those in need. Now, this isn't to say that we don't practice good self-care, that we don't take time to mourning. Jesus does take time to be alone in the next little bit, to grieve. But let's remember that in the work of fighting injustice, the work of Jesus is done from a place of inner transformation, of allowing the Spirit to change the way we think and feel. And so in light of what I just said about our inner Herods, it should remind us of the importance of the inner work of transformation. Healing, being set free from the powers of darkness are essential to loving God and others well. And then there are the disciples. Uh, it's perhaps interesting because in Matthew fourteen nineteen we see that as far as the crowd is concerned, it's the crowd that feed, it's the disciples that feed the crowd, not Jesus. The, the crowd doesn't even know necessarily that a miracle has happened in this retelling. It is the disciples. I've been struck by this fact that no one knows. I wonder how often does God continue to work this way. Through us, God meets the needs of people, and sometimes they don't even know who truly helped them. The disciples, it seems, are growing in their faith. Uh, the first time they encountered a storm after Jesus healed, the, stopped the storm, they, they were afraid. In this chapter, we didn't read it, but in the next story in this chapter, they again encounter a large storm, and this time their response is faith and praise. The disciples are learning. They're growing. They seem to understand that mercy and compassion, that feeding hungry people is something that really matters to Jesus. And so they're out in this deserted place, and they come to Jesus, and they say, look, uh, Jesus, uh, it's isolated. It's getting late. You should send the crowds away so they can get some food. Good job. They must have thought, you know, pat themselves on the back a little bit. We show Jesus. We're getting it. Uh, I think this is a good growth moment, something to celebrate in the life of the disciples. Jesus must have been delighted that his disciples were thinking about other people, that they realized that food was important. But then Jesus pushes it deeper for the disciples. He, he, you can hear him saying, good, good job. That's a good step. But let's go one more. And Jesus says, there's no need to send them away. You give them something to eat. Not unlike that frightening moment a few chapters ago when Jesus told them to pray for workers for the harvest and then they found themselves sent out as workers for the harvest. Uh-oh, the disciples think. Oh, well, Jesus, we don't have a lot. Uh, I got five loaves of bread and two fish. For the, that was going to be supper for the 13 of us, which wasn't going to be really a big supper, but... Okay, Jesus, we know this is important. Uh, we remember that when we were picking grain last Sabbath, you defended us. So, okay, Jesus, you can have what we have. Isn't this how God so often works? Exodus 4 and 14, God uses a shepherd's staff that was in Moses' hand to bring the deliverance of God's people. 2 Kings verse 4, it is ordinary every jars for a widow and her son that bring their salvation and a miracle. What's in your hand? Oh, I can use that, God says. 
God takes everyday, ordinary things that are in our hands. We give them to him. He breaks them. He makes them ready for use. And then he gives them back to us to use for others. And so N.T. Wright takes this whole story of the feeding of the 5,000, and he, he breaks it out like this. And I, I know this is the N.T. Wright sermon, but he was on fire in this chapter. This is what he says. Think through how it's happened. Being close to Jesus has turned into the thought of service. Jesus takes the thought and turns it inside out, making it more costly, of course. And he gives it back to you as a challenge. In puzzled response to the challenge, you offer what you've got, knowing it's quite inadequate, but again, costly. The same thing happens. He takes it. He blesses it. He breaks it. There's cost yet again. And he gives it to you. And your job now is to give it to everybody else. This is how it works. Whenever someone is close enough to Jesus to catch a glimpse of what he's doing and how they could help, we blunder in with our ideas. We offer up uncomprehendingly what little we have. Jesus takes our ideas, our loaves and fishes, our money, a sense of humor, time, energy, talents, love, artistic gifts, skills with words, quickness of eye, finger, whatever we have. He holds it before his Father with prayer and blessing. Then breaking them so they are ready to use, he gives them back to us to give to those who need them. I find this a helpful way of remembering what it is like to follow after Jesus. Like the first story we looked at this morning, there is a cost to following Jesus. Sometimes we forget that fact. We like Jesus to be easy, not maybe quite so demanding. But maybe what we learn from looking at the disciples is that when we are with Jesus, the power of his compassion will often sweep us up. Then our hearts are being transformed as Jesus' heart. Our hearts see people with compassion and mercy. Maybe the cost doesn't feel quite so costly. And then Jesus will take what little we have, our shepherd staff, the empty jars, the work you do, the skills you have, and he will take them. He will hold them up to the Father. He will bless them and break them. And he will give them to you to share to the world. Amen. Would you pray with me? Jesus, give us the strength to be like John the Baptist. Let us be bold in the face of our dearest friends and most powerful bosses and leaders that we would speak the truth and call people to repentance. Jesus, forgive us for where we have been like Herod, nursing our secret weaknesses and letting sin grow in us. Give us the strength to bring those things to the light and invite your freedom and healing to come to us in our community of faith. Jesus, thank you for the way you teach us of the importance of inner transformation. Help us see the world as you do to turn our hearts and our sorrow, our anger, our pride into compassion and love for those around us. And Jesus, let us be like the disciples, quick to offer you our little ideas of how we can help people. And Jesus, I pray that you would take these thoughts, these ideas, these dreams, these talents, you would multiply them, you would grow them beyond what we could have ever imagined. Amen.